0: We can make a difference.
1: Get the bottle of amoxicillin and, and fill a syringe. Quick injection of antibiotics and I can get it out of
0: here. For once your life. Would to kill you to pick it up? Help me get this thing out of here. No, no, know. we just, just have to... He's very angry.
1: And welcome to Verbal Diorama, episode 225, The Lost World, Jurassic Park. This is the podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. And as always, welcome to Verbal Diorama. Whether you are a brand new listener to this podcast, whether you are coming back because you're a regular or irregular returning listener, thank you for being here. Thank you for choosing to listen to this podcast. There are a lot of movie podcasts out there. And I'm so happy to have you here with me today for the history and legacy of the lost world jurassic park before we get stuck into the lost world colon jurassic park i just want to say a huge thank you for the amazing comments that i got for the most recent episodes for sequel timber so x-men days of future past was the first one that came out in sequel timber and then jaws 2 jaws 3d and jaws the revenge the first ever triple bill episode of this podcast. And it was a bit experimental for me to do a triple bill episode. But the reactions kind of came back were great and people seemed to really love it. So there will be more coming. But I just want to add and say apologies for the delay to this episode. Specifically, because you'll notice if you're a regular listener, this episode was supposed to come out last week and there was no episode last week. And basically, that's just because life has just been a little bit busy at the moment. And honestly, I ran out of time to finish the episode. So instead of stressing about it, I decided to take a bit of a break and come back refreshed and basically finish it off the following week. And just to let you know as well that because of certain time limitations and stuff like that, there are going to be some small changes coming to this podcast. But don't worry, because the host, that's me. And the history and legacy of Movies You Know and Movies You Don't is not going to change. So nothing about the bare bones of this podcast is going to change. But I just want to focus on that more. And I want to make the production a bit easier and faster for me in a world where my free time is becoming a little bit more limited. So it is basically going to be pretty much exactly the same podcast. Just ever so slightly trimmed, ever so slightly, a bit more focused on the film history rather than anything else. But as I've had feedback from regular listeners, hopefully that's not going to come as too much of a surprise, but I'll go into that in a bit more detail towards the end of this episode. So we're actually going to be ending sequel Ten, but with the sequel to Jurassic Park. And Jurassic Park was, and i said that I did back in 2020 at the peak of the pandemic in August of that year. It was the birthday episode, actually, for August 2020. And this was the rare sequel that Steven Spielberg did actually direct, unlike Jaws 2. It was largely due to the fact that he had no control over the Jaws sequels that he took on The Lost World. But that didn't mean that he found it an enjoyable gig. Here's the trailer for The Lost World. Jurassic Park. Mommy! Daddy! I found something! A British family on a yacht cruise stumbled upon Site B. Now it's only a matter of time before
0: this lost world is found and pillaged. Hopefully, we've kept this island quarantined and contained, but I'm in shock about all this. Isn't it great? Ooh, ah, that's how it always starts. But then later there's running and then screaming.
1: What the hell was that? Go.
0: As fast as you can. I need you to send rescue immediately. I'm taking dinosaurs off this island. Ah! the worst idea and history of bad ideas. Let's get this movable beast underway. Don't move. What is it? Mommy's very angry.
1: After the failure of Jurassic Park on Isla Nublar, John Hammond reveals to Ian Malcolm there was another island on which dinosaurs were bred before being transported to Jurassic Park. Left alone since the disaster, the dinosaurs have flourished. With the apparent public discovery of the site, B production island, John Hammond assembles a team to visit and document the area before it's exploited by InGen. Included in the full-person team are Dr Ian Malcolm and his girlfriend, Dr Sarah Harding. When the team reaches the island, they soon discover the presence of another group of people. This new group, however, are not there for observational reasons, but instead have something more sinister in mind. Let's run through the cast. We have Jeff Goldblum returning as Dr Ian Malcolm, Julianne Moore as Dr Sarah Harding, Pete Postlethwaite as Roland Tembo, Arliss Howard as Peter Ludlow, Richard Aftonborough as Dr John Hammond, Vince Vaughn as Nick Van Owen, Vanessa Lee Chester as Kelly Curtis, Peter Stormare as Dieter Stark, Richard Schiff as Eddie Carr, Harvey Jason as AJ Sidhu, Joseph Mazzello as Tim Murphy, and Ariana Richards as Lex Murphy. The Lost World: Jurassic Park has a screenplay by David Koepp, is based on The Lost World by Michael Crichton, and was directed by Steven Spielberg. So I mentioned on top of this episode, Jaws 2. And Jaws 2 was famously a sequel to his original movie that Steven Spielberg did not want to direct. He'd done his iconic shark movie and he felt no need to go back. Plus, obviously, Jaws was an absolute disaster production. But this time around, Spielberg took on the sequel to his iconic dinosaur movie. What was it about The Lost World that enticed Spielberg to return for only his third directorial sequel? Second, if you take into account that Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom is actually a prequel. Well, it turned out to be a deeply personal decision based on security and to a degree ease of getting back into the director's chair after a short break away from directing. But we'll come back to that in a bit because I don't need to tell you what a huge hit Jurassic Park was. You know it. I know it. Barbara down the road at number 57 knows it. Hi, Barbara. And that's a coincidence because it's also episode 57 of this podcast back in August 2020. And as I said, it was the birthday episode for that year. Jurassic Park became the highest grossing film of all time until Titanic surpassed it five years later, as well as Steven Spielberg's highest grossing film, surpassing E.T., a title it still holds to this day, of movies that he directed, that is. So it's no surprise that not only did Universal want a sequel, but so did fans. After all, that subplot of Dennis Nedry and the stolen frozen embryos in the barbersole can was right there, ready to plan an epic sequel of some rival company's breeding programme. But, as the first movie told us, your scientists were so preoccupied with whether they could they didn't stop to think if they should. And a sequel to one of the biggest movies of all time could easily be, your filmmakers were so preoccupied with whether they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. And that doesn't mean that Jurassic Park was designed with sequels in mind. And while Spielberg wasn't known for his love of taking on sequels to his classic works, neither was original Jurassic Park novelist Michael Crichton. When his novel Jurassic Park was published in 1990, He received swathes of fan letters pleading for a sequel, some suggesting ideas for a sequel, but Crichton always dismissed them. In Universal's demand for a sequel movie came Spielberg with a proposition for Crichton to write his first and only sequel novel. And his inspiration came from a land long ago, a hidden part of South America where prehistoric animals not only survived, but thrived in a novel written in 1912 by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle called The Lost World. And a silent film from 1925 based on that novel, directed by Harry O'Hoyt, also called The Lost World, which featured pioneering stop-motion by Willis O'Brien, the guy who'd go on to work on King Kong and become the mentor of Ray Harryhausen. And that was something I briefly went into, into the episode that I did on Jason and the Argonauts, That is episode 151 of this podcast, and it's one of my favourite episodes. I think I say that about all my episodes, but I specifically love Jason and the Argonauts. So in The Lost World, Willis O'Brien combined animated dinosaurs with live-action footage of human beings. But at first, he was able to do this only by separating the frame into two parts. The Lost World was the first feature-length film made in the US to feature stop-motion animation and is now in the public domain. Crichton would write the second novel at the same time as plans were afoot for a second film. But at the time of Crichton's announcement in March 1994, Spielberg hadn't committed to directing. Mostly because the guy needed a break after both of his 1993 hits, Jurassic Park and Schindler's List, which he'd made back-to-back, had respectably become the biggest and most acclaimed movies of the year. By March 1995, though, Spielberg signed up to produce and not direct the sequel, before Crichton's novel had been published, citing his commitments to his brand new studio Dreamworks that he set up with Jeffrey Katzenberg and David Geffen as the reason why he was unsure if he wanted to direct the sequel or not. Producers Gerald R. and Colin Wilson, both of whom had worked on Jurassic Park, started to put plans in place for the sequel. While Michael Crichton was finishing The Lost World, the novel, Spielberg and screenwriter David Kep were brainstorming ideas for the screenplay. Gerald Molin roughed out a schedule and budget. Colin Wilson, who oversaw the visual effects work and was largely responsible for the post-production on Jurassic Park while Spielberg was in Poland making Schindler's List, reassembled the visual effects team from the first film, alongside special effects legends Stan Winston, Michael Lantieri and Dennis Muran, who were all eager to use recently developed technologies to improve what they did in the first movie. Joe Johnston offered to direct the Jurassic Park sequel, but he was still working on post-production for Jumanji, and wasn’t able to. Spielberg himself would finally be announced to direct in November 1995, reportedly because he thought directing a Jurassic Park sequel would be easier than doing something new after a three-year break from directing. Both Spielberg and Crichton decided to forego upfront fees for a share of the profits. David Kep's fee was a record for the time. to $2 million. Crichton's sequel novel was named in honour of Arthur Conan Doyle's adventure and would eventually be published in September 1996. But in terms of differences, there are a few. Spielberg and Koepp would only loosely base the movie on Crichton's novel and base it on Jurassic Park, the film, which itself had several differences, including the survival and inclusion of John Hammond, who died in Crichton's original novel, but survived in Spielberg's film. And Ian Malcolm, who also died in Crichton's novel, but Crichton would ensure his survival for the sequel. And so the film version of The Lost World followed suit. And to be honest, if you're going to bring back one of the best characters in the first movie, you're going to make sure he headlines your sequel. The character of Richard Levine, an arrogant paleontologist who incites Ian Malcolm to travel to Isla Sorna on a rescue mission, does not exist in the movie, and nor does Jack Thorne, Instead, you have Nick Van Owen. Sarah Harding does exist in both, and she takes the rescue paleontologist role. In the book, there are two child stowaways, Arby Benton and Kelly Curtis. Arby and Kelly are combined into one character, the character of Kelly, and she becomes Ian Malcolm's teenage daughter. Michael Crichton brought back the head of Bison, Louis Dodgson, the guy who bribes Dennis Nedry for the dinosaur embryos as the chief antagonist of his book, The Lost World but the movie creates a new villain, John Hammond's greedy nephew Peter Ludlow, as the new CEO of InGen. And then there's the major difference, the San Diego of it all. This was a decision made by Spielberg because he wanted desperately to have a dinosaur on the mainland US, but knew he probably wasn't going to direct another Jurassic Park movie, which to his credit was totally factual. And so he changed the ending to ensure he got a T-Rex rampage in San Diego, a clear homage to King Kong and All Godzilla. But back to the adaptation, because Spielberg and Kep had been working on their own ideas for about a year. Once Crichton released his novel, the idea became a combination of the two. With Crichton set up as the starting point, and Kep filling in the story narrative, keeping parts of the novel that Spielberg liked, such as The Second Island, and the trailer being attacked by two T-Rexes. Spielberg preferred Kepp watching the 1925 film version of The Lost World instead of reading Crichton's novel for inspiration. Kepp cited Crichton's original Jurassic Park book when discussing certain scenes that would be included in the Lost World film adaptation. The way Procomp Sognathus killed John Hammond in the first book served as an inspiration for Dieter Stark's death scene, and the first novel's opening scene, in which a Procomp Sognathus bites a girl on the beach, served as the inspiration for the movie's opening scene. A scene from the first novel where characters hide from a T-Rex behind a waterfall was also included. However, the scene was expanded in the Lost World Jurassic Park for when the T-Rex eats the character of Robert Burke. The original ending of the film was for a group of Pteranodons to attack a helicopter trying to leave Isla Sauna. And there's a nod to this with the Pteranodon being featured in the ending shot. But Spielberg would change this ending to the San Diego Rampage, thinking it would thrill audiences and also pay homage to the 1925 The Lost World, which features a brontosaurus rampage in London. This brand new third act was completed by Kemp in a week. With the script in place, casting had started in earnest with Richard Attenborough, already set to reprise his role as John Hammond in 1994, and Jeff Goldblum confirmed to return as fan favourite Dr Ian Malcolm, this time the mead rather than the dashing supporting character. And additionally, this time he brought along his on-screen daughter, In 1995, Steven Spielberg met young Vanessa Lee Chester at the premiere of her film A Little Princess. He asked her to sign an autograph and told her he wanted to cast her in one of his movies. A year later, young Vanessa got a call from Amblin saying Spielberg wanted to cast her in the Jurassic Park sequel. Vanessa was his first and only choice to play Kelly. Julianne Moore was cast after Spielberg admired her performance in The Fugitive. She was facing a huge divorce settlement at the time, And admitted she took the job for the money, but ended up having a great time doing the movie. The late, great Pete Postlethwaite, that rhymes, was cast based on his performance in In the Name of the Father, but would go on to work with Spielberg again in Amistad. Postlethwaite's reason for taking the role in The Lost World was simple. He wanted to work with Spielberg. But it wasn't just people who wanted to work with Spielberg. Spielberg wanted to work with certain people too. He'd been contacted by Doug Lehman and Jon Favreau about having permission to use the music from Jaws in the movie Swingers. And he saw Swingers and he was impressed by the performance of Vince Vaughn in that movie. Spielberg hired him for The Lost World for the character of Nick Van Owen without Vaughn even having to screen test. Production designer Rick Carter, who also designed the look for Jurassic Park, began his work on The Lost World when he and storyboard artist Dave Lowery met over dinner with Spielberg and started storyboarding one of the scenes from the book, and it evolved from there. By the autumn of 1996, they had a full crew of set designers, art directors, and illustrators to create a more natural, wild environment that is less hospitable to the dinosaur population than the safe containment of the man-made part of the first movie. Carter and his team constructed various environments based on what they knew as the outline of the movie. They would show Spielberg their ideas for set, and when he approved them, They'd come up with more and more scenes, and those would be storyboarded and become part of the actual story. The preliminary visualisation phase continued as Carter, his art directors, draftsmen and illustrators refined the ideas into models. Carter also took to the computer for help in determining the look of many of the visual effects sequences. He made rough 3D animations, called animatics, which showed characters moving within an approximation of the set. The storyboards, animatics, illustrations and models created by Carter's art department provided the foundation for the entire production. The storyboards gave every member of the growing production team a clear idea of Spielberg's vision, information they would use to prepare their portions of the movie. They were constant throughout production, with filmmakers using them as a guide from the earliest days of prep right through to post-production. On the set, for instance, storyboards for each day's work were posted on a large display board, and as pieces of the sequence were shot, the corresponding storyboard was marked as complete. The visual effects for The Lost World would be every bit as challenging as they were on the first film, perhaps even more so. The team had to flawlessly interlace digital, physical and animatronic effects with one surprise returning cast member, the original T-Rex from the first movie. At a studio in the San Fernando Valley, the legendary Stan Winston was already well into the process of creating an entirely new set of dinosaurs, In the years between Jurassic Park and The Lost World, new technology and hydraulic systems had evolved. While the CG was undoubtedly more advanced and would be utilised more in this movie than in its predecessor, hydraulics had also improved, meaning more animatronic dinosaurs could be created in half the time, and for slightly less money, as well as more CG dinosaurs to make a total of more dinosaurs, going against Spielberg's original Jaws-esque principle, of not showing the dinosaurs as often to build suspense. This basically meant more dinosaurs on screen for less money and just like Jaws 2, give the people what they want equals more dinosaurs. However, the T-Rex from the first movie needed more than just new armatures and movements. They needed to improve it and build it an almost identical mate. Stan Winston and his team developed a second adult T-Rex from scratch and created nearly 40 different creatures in total. While the retooled T-Rex from the first movie joins Jeff Goldblum and Richard Attenborough as a returning cast member, over 100 artists and technicians contributed their skills to the creation of the various dinosaurs over the course of a year and a half at the Stan Winston studio. The Lost World also features 75 CGI shots, increased from Jurassic Park's 59. Careful coordination and collaboration between all the visual effects teams were required for the project. The giant T-Rex frames and movements, as well as a number of other design issues, were constructed with close collaboration between Michael Lantieri, who was in charge of the mechanical effects team. Maquettes or scale models of the finished dinosaurs were provided by the Winston studio to Dennis Murren and his team at Industrial Light & Magic, who then matched the hues, textures and motions of the virtual creatures to blend in with Winston's live-action dinosaurs. The two nine-turn-1-million-dollar-each animatronic T-Rexes were so big and heavy that they could pull two Gs of force in movement, which could easily kill someone. So they were treated on set like living, dangerous animals, which included bringing the sets to them rather than bringing the T-Rexes to set. They were so big they couldn't easily be moved from stage 24, so new sets were built around them, for the mobile trailer sequence, and again for tearing Eddie's vehicle apart. Stegosaurus were included after Kep received a letter from a child, suggesting no long boring parts and also where are the stegosaurs. Both the baby and adult stegosaurus were built in full size by Winston's team, but Spielberg ultimately decided to use a digital version of the adults so they could move around more easily. The infant stegosaurus measured eight feet in length, weighed 400 pounds, and was shipped to the Redwood Forest for on-location filming. The adult stegosaurs were 16.9 feet tall and 26 feet long. They were also brought to the forest for filming, but due to safety and mobility issues, they were actually never used. There is one brief shot of a full-sized animatronic stegosaurus, and that is in the scene where the animals are caged. Rick Carter would travel the world on location scouting trips, visiting Hawaii, Puerto Rico, New Zealand and Australia, choosing to film in New Zealand to have different scenery. But this was switched to California for financial reasons when Humboldt County offered financial incentives and filming took place in Prairie Creek Redwood State Park and Sumeg State Park for a couple of weeks in September 1996, moving onto the Universal lot later into the autumn. Spielberg didn't get his cast to rehearse beforehand. He wanted the first takes to be the first interactions between the actors as their characters. And when Spielberg had to take time away from the set for a week for family reasons, he directed the cast all the way from New York via a satellite connection for the key scenes with the trailer over the cliff. The parking garage building at Universal was redesigned as the mountainside and a 95-ton crane was used to dangle the trailer over the cliff edge. The adult T-Rexes attacked the trailer by ramming their heads into it before pushing it over the cliff. The animatronic versions of the T-Rexes were used and rather than using CG, the animatronics were so heavy they did actually damage the trailers for real. Shots combining the animatronic T-Rexes and the trailer were captured on stage 24 at Universal and additional scenes involving the trailer were captured on stage 27. A portion of the trailer scene where actor Richard Schiff attempts to throw rope to the characters stuck in the trailer was filmed in a continuous take using a 26-foot crane arm and a dolly track built into the stage. It didn't mean key shots weren't tricky. Interference from other equipment would mean the in-trailer shots weren't working. 15 takes later, a remote focus mechanism was mounted onto the camera and they finally managed to get the shot. And while it's tough to replicate the majesty of key scenes in the original Jurassic Park, there are some terrific shots in this movie, from Julianne Moore falling and delicately trying to balance herself on a cracking glass windscreen over the edge of a cliff, to the raptors hunting the InGen team through long grass. And this grass was really grown for the production. Eight acres of land in Newell, California, was planted a year before the shoot. The acreage was necessary for any reshoots as flattened grass wouldn't come back up. And an eight-scale dock and miniature ship were created for the scene in which the T-Rex arrives in San Diego. And if you're wondering just how the ship's crew all suffered a gruesome fate while the T-Rex was in the hold, Originally, a raptor was supposed to have escaped and killed everyone on board, but this was cut for time. Speaking of character deaths, I mean, there's a lot of character deaths in this movie and this movie is probably a bit more horrific and gruesome than the first movie. But let's just say poor Dieter Stark. And speaking of Dieter Stark, that's a lovely segue and not very original to the obligatory Keanu reference of this episode. The obligatory Keanu reference is going nowhere. The obligatory Keanu reference is staying in this podcast. This is where I tried to link the movie that I'm featuring with Keanu Reeves. And why am I mentioning Dieter Stark? Peter Stormare, who plays Dieter Stark, starred with Keanu in the excellent and very highly underrated Constantine. He plays the character of Lucifer and is widely seen as one of the best on-screen depictions of Lucifer, the devil, Satan, however you want to call him. But... That is the Obligatricchiani reference. And literally, as soon as I realised I was doing The Lost World Jurassic Park and Peter Storbear was in it, that was it. I knew what the reference was going to be. It's that easy. It's not always that easy, but this week it is that easy. But we can't talk about a Steven Spielberg movie without talking about the frequent collaborator of Steven Spielberg and the guy who also did the music for the original Jurassic Park. Because not only did Steven Spielberg return for The Lost World Jurassic Park, the score was once again composed and conducted by the legendary John Williams. And unlike most of his sequel scores, Williams largely avoided reusing the major themes from Jurassic Park. And instead, he created a completely new sound and set of motifs to fit the darker tone and new setting of the second Jurassic Park movie. Writing two new primary themes for the score of The Lost World And only a few times in The Lost World do the main Jurassic Park themes appear. Steven Spielberg would actually say that he thought that Williams' work on the follow-up was better than his work on the original Jurassic Park. I mean, the original Jurassic Park score is pretty iconic, though, so I don't think there's many people that would agree with you, Steven. It is, however, a typically wonderful John Williams score. And also with Jurassic Park being one of the biggest movies of all time, Universal would announce a T-Rex-sized $250 million marketing campaign for The Lost World, working with huge-name promotional partners such as Burger King, Mercedes-Benz and Timberland. Both Mercedes-Benz and Timberland would have products featured in the movie, with Mercedes using it to introduce the snap titled Mercedes-Benz W163, its first sports utility vehicle, which replaced the Ford Explorer from the previous movie. And Digital Theatre Systems, which is owned in part by both Universal and Amblin, created a special version of the teaser trailer for The Lost World, using DTS-driven strobe lights inside the cinema to provide lightning-like effects during a rainstorm scene. And the trailer, which debuted on the 13th of December 1996 at 42 locations in the US and Toronto, used six strobe lights synchronised to the trailer print by the same DTS sync code used to run the film's CD-ROM soundtrack and these special trailers cost $14,000 per site. The Lost World Jurassic Park premiered on the 19th of May 1997 at the Cineplex Odeon in Universal City, California, and released wide on the 23rd of May 1997, where it grossed $104 million in its first week alone, opened at number one at the box office. Its only competition that week was Addicted to Love, the Meg Ryan Matthew Broderick romantic comedy. The Lost World spent two weeks at number one before being dethroned by Con Air. Fox would pay a whopping $80 million for the TV broadcasting rights to The Lost World Jurassic Park and began airing it on TV on the 1st of November 1998. And the TV version included several deleted scenes reinserted into the movie. On a budget of $73 million, The Lost World Jurassic Park grossed $229.1 million in the US and $389.6 million internationally for a total worldwide gross of $618.6 million, becoming the second highest grossing film of 1997 behind Titanic. Not a patch on the original worldwide's gross of $1.11 billion and nothing compared to Jurassic World's $1.67 billion, but at least it was more than Jurassic Park 3. Right? (laughs) But while it did sterling business financially, critically the sequel's darker tone didn't sit too well with critics or audiences. And in hindsight, even Spielberg doesn't think the film lived up to expectations. He would say to the New York Times in 2016 that Jurassic Park, quote, made a gazillion dollars, which justifies the sequel. So I come in like it's going to be a slam dunk and I wind up making an inferior movie to the one before, unquote. And you'd be hard-pressed to find anyone making an argument that the Lost World Jurassic Park surpasses Jurassic Park it currently sits at 54% on Rotten Tomatoes. It doesn't mean it's a terrible movie it just means it's never going to be as good as the original which is kind of unfortunate for any sequel to Jurassic Park. It was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Visual Effects at the 70th Academy Awards which it lost to Titanic which is unsurprising as most nominees lost to Titanic that year. It was also nominated for a Grammy for John Williams for Best Instrumental Composition as well as three Golden Raspberry Awards and two Stinkers Bad Movie Awards. And of course, there were sequels to this movie. There was Jurassic Park 3 in 2001, and then the sequel slash reboot in 2015 with Jurassic World, Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom in 2018, and Jurassic World Dominion in 2022. Right, let's move over to some listener thoughts. And this is going to be, for a while at least, the final listener thoughts section of the podcast. This is where I normally go on social media and Patreon and I ask people what they think of the movie that I'm featuring. While it is only a small part of this podcast, it's always received a bit of a mixed reception from listeners. Some people love to hear people's thoughts about the movie, whether they agree or disagree. And some people don't want to hear other people's thoughts. They're just here for the history and legacy of the movie. And I totally respect that because this is a film history podcast. So... My plan is, is to trial removing listener comments until the end of the year, see how much more time that gives me on producing these episodes, because obviously getting these comments and adding them and putting effects on them and stuff like that, it does take a little bit of extra time, but I didn't just want to remove listener comments. So I put it out to the patrons of this podcast because I'm so very grateful to the patrons of this podcast for their support. And so I thought let's say goodbye with a bang with the patron thoughts for The Lost World Jurassic Park. And we're going to start with, as always, perennial commenter Andy, who says Where do I begin with The Lost World? Much like the novel that came out in response to the success of the 1993 film, The Lost World Jurassic Park feels equally a product of studio synergy and marketing where it doesn't even feel like a Spielberg film. It leans into all of the worst instincts that were merely skirted in the original film, self-righteous dialogue, two-dimensional antagonists, action set pieces for the sake of action set pieces, etc. Slightly better than JP3 and some of the sequel World Trilogy, but it really struggles against the other big Spielberg-produced blockbuster of the summer, Men in Black, which is pretty damn perfect. Because Andy is perennial commenter Andy, he comments pretty much every episode. And so every episode, pretty much, I give him the plug for his podcast, Geek Salad. Go and check out Andy's podcast. It is called Geek Salad, and it is your one-stop shop for everything and anything geeky. I'll put some information in the show notes for Geek Salad. Please have a listen. I guarantee you will find episodes to love. And the final patron comment comes from Brett, who says, The Lost World is a film that takes what Jurassic Park did and eliminates the suspense and adds more action and more dinosaurs. Ian Malcolm seemed like a completely different character from the original, and it ultimately didn't feel like a Spielberg film. Even with all of those flaws, The Lost World is a blast and was always a film I would immediately watch after the original, even today. And Brett also has his own podcast. It's called Dissect That Film, and it is full of movie retrospectives, new releases. There's even some TV show discussions in there. And it's Brett and Dan and Angela. It is a terrific podcast. They are excellent friends of this podcast. And I highly recommend that you also listen to Dissect that film. But that is it. That is for the time being, the very last listener comment section of this podcast. Whether it comes back in the future, whether it comes back slightly different, who knows? I'm going to see what happens towards the end of the year and make a decision as to what I'm going to do. But for now, it's a goodbye to the listener comment section of this podcast. Goodbye, listener comment section. It's amazing to think, actually, that 26 years have passed since The Lost World first debuted and four additional films in the franchise, Jurassic Park 3, Jurassic World, Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom and Jurassic World Dominion, have all failed to match its magic. And this strange sequel has surprisingly grown all the more stronger for the other sequels kind of not being so great. John Hammond declares at the beginning of this movie, we won't make the same mistakes, referring to the failures of the first Jurassic Park. Ian Malcolm responds in the most Jeff Goldblum-esque way possible, no, you're making all new ones. And it's kind of ironic because he's correct in regards to The Lost World, because while it gives viewers enough fresh dinosaur action to send it apart from the first movie, and it borrows beats from that first movie, they are making all new mistakes. John Hammond enlists Dr. Malcolm to provide evidence that InGen should invade the island and capture the dinosaurs, and Ian Malcolm must instead show why the dinosaurs should be allowed to exist in their natural habitats. But Ian Malcolm's selection for the mission is kind of implausible, giving his incredibly vocal opposition to the creation of dinosaur clones in the first place. But oh no, his girlfriend is already there, and oh no, his teenage daughter is stowed away. It is all contrived to the point of ridiculousness, but it also doesn't make it any less enjoyable to watch. When viewed as standalone set pieces, The Lost World's action is quite masterful, featuring Spielberg behind the camera and some of the most cutting-edge effects work in Hollywood. However, there's still not much meat between the bones. There are paper-thin bad guys who are literally waiting in a line to be devoured by dinosaurs, There are cringeworthy remarks, and there are phony justifications for moving from one dinosaur encounter to the next. Where Jurassic Park had smart characters occasionally doing dumb things, The Lost World has dumb characters doing dumb things. Julianne Moore is one of the most acclaimed actors of her generation, but Sarah Harding seems to be written to just be an idiot. From interacting with the baby stegosaur only to remind people these animals are not to be interacted with, to running around the island covered in baby T Rex blood after saying these animals have the best sense of smell. Honestly, sometimes I look at this movie and I find it quite laughable. And I'm not even a paleontologist. But technologically speaking, in the absence of his regular cinematographer Dean Cundey, Spielberg enlisted Janusz Kamiski. And his outstanding cinematography really does stand out, especially when compared to the first Jurassic Park. The darker aesthetic works, it's stunningly filmed, It's genuinely terrifying, it's violent, and the raptors in the grass sequence is a standout moment. We never get a clear shot of the animals or the mayhem that they're causing, but the tail thrashing tells us everything we need to know about each person's horrific death. And Comiskey gives these images a nightmare-like quality. Steven Spielberg immediately began directing Schindler's List after finishing the first Jurassic Park. And following The Lost World, he directed the poignant slavery drama Amistad and the war film Saving Private Ryan. And he seemed to really steer away from blockbuster cinema like Jaws and like Jurassic Park. He tended to go for stuff that was darker. And there was often something missing that made a Spielberg project a Spielberg project. And while he may have refused to direct Jaws 2, instead choosing to make Jaws on Land with the original Jurassic Park, and this is something Spielberg himself has admitted in interviews, The Jurassic Park became his Jaws sequel. With The Lost World Jurassic Park, however, even the legendary Steven Spielberg was unable to escape the cliché trappings of sequels. There was more CGI, more dinosaurs, more bloodshed, more humans being eaten, more of everything, really. Not even the inclusion of the normally suave, stoic Ian Malcolm could help proceedings, and definitely not a gymnastic kick to a raptor's face. But for all its flaws... The Lost World's dark, horror influence is still felt today. And with the most recent Jurassic World Dominion getting a critical slating, it is still easily the best follow-up to Jurassic Park. And while John Hammond assured us he wasn't making the same mistakes again, The Lost World is a strong reminder that Steven Spielberg giving us more of everything he did before still remains a more interesting and fulfilling prospect than pretty much any other Jurassic Park slash world movie ever did thank you for listening. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on the Lost World Jurassic Park. And as always, get involved. Help this podcast grow. If you do love what I do and you want to help Verbal Diorama grow for free, then you could leave a rating or review wherever you found this podcast. You can find me all across social media. I am on Twitter. Apparently it's called X now, but I still call it Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, the threads, and also Blue Sky now as well. I am at Verbal Diorama. You can retweet, you can like posts or repost posts or whatever you want to do with those posts. Find me on social media, follow me, follow the work that I'm doing and spread the word about this podcast. And you can also do that as well by telling friends and family about this podcast too. And if you did like this episode on the Lost World Jurassic Park, then of course I'm going to recommend episode 57, the original Jurassic Park. It's one of those episodes that I genuinely love doing. I can only hope that this is a worthy follow-up to that episode. Of course, give me feedback. or on the recommendations or anything to do with this episode. Let me know on social media what you think. And the next episode, well, October is upon us. And October is the start of official spooky season. And I want to do more horror. I'm always asked on this podcast to do more horror. So I wanted to start out with something a bit fun and a bit campy, a bit of a cult classic, along the veins of one of my personal favourites, Tales from the Crypt Demon Night, which is an episode that I've done in the past. I love that movie so much. And that is the 1997 horror fantasy Wishmaster. Wishmaster was executively produced by none other than Wes Craven and features a host of very famous horror cameos, as well as links to a couple of other movies that I'm also going to be featuring in October. So join me next week for the history and legacy of Wishmaster. And just by listening to this podcast, you are supporting this podcast and I'm so grateful. But if you do want to join the patrons of this podcast, then you can at verbaldiorama.com slash Patreon. And they are Simon E, Sade, Claudia, Simon B, Laurel, Derek, Vern, Kat, Andy, Mike, Luke, Michael, Scott, Brendan, Lisa, Sam, Jack, Dave, Stuart, Nicholas, So, Kev, Pete, Heather, Danny, Ali, Tyler, Stu, Brett, Philip, Michelle, and a huge hi and welcome to brand new patron Russell. Russell actually sent me the loveliest email recently telling me how much he enjoys listening to the podcast, how much he enjoys listening with his son as well, and also how much he loves the fact that this podcast is family friendly because, well, no one wants their kids listening to the F bomb every so often. So, Thank you for the lovely email, Russell, and thank you for becoming a patron. I'm so grateful to all the patrons, but especially this week to Russell. So thank you so much to you all. And obviously, if you don't want to become a patron, but you do want to support financially in another way, you can always give me a tip by going to verbaldiorama.com slash tips and just give a one-off donation, just something to maybe buy me a coffee or buy Evie some Licky Licks. That would be awesome. But again... No obligation. This podcast is free and it always will be free. I do have a merch store. It's com slash merch. And if you don't want to get in touch like Russell and you want to email me, you can. I am verbaldiorama at gmail.com or you can go to verbaldiorama.com and you can fill out the contact me form on the website, just like Russell. And I will respond just like I did to Russell. I've actually had a lovely conversation with Russell over email. He's a very nice man. You can also find my work at filmstories.co.uk. You can check out the magazine that I write for and the online articles as well. And finally,
0: bye you vision now